So from comet clouds to slavery. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know I haven't got any slavery-themed gifts to give out. That would be a little bit tasteless. But to, to begin to talk about slavery and why it's forgotten, we have to talk about the empire and why much of that's forgotten. Because one of the strange things about Britain is that we do like to remind ourselves and remind the world that we had the biggest empire the world's ever seen, though that's, tell that to a Spanish person and they'll disagree with you. But we've forgotten in lots of ways the way in which that empire changed us, changed our culture, changed who we are. And one of the examples that historians love to talk about when it comes to this is the story of our national drink, of tea. So tea is from China, though Britain could never get enough of it from China. So we took our national drink from one country and transplanted it into India. At the height, there was one million Indians producing tea for the British. We sweeten our national drink with another crop that doesn't grow here, with cane sugar, which comes from New Guinea, though the British encountered it in Brazil. And we grew it in the Caribbean islands, and we did so with the labor of people from Africa. We drink this British drink, made of foreign tropical produce, in porcelain from China, which we still call China. People say the only part of tea that's actually British is milk, but actually the cows are Dutch, they're Friesen Holstein. So we've forgotten a lot of what the empire was for us, but the most forgotten of all is the story, I think, of slavery. A lot of what we've forgotten is just amnesia. Slavery's been deliberately forgotten. There's lots of myths about slavery. Britain didn't abolish slavery first, that was the Danes. We didn't do it entirely out of the goodness of our heart. The abolitionists were remarkable people and I admire them immensely, but we also abolished the slave trade because they'd been a revolution in Haiti and we abolished slavery because they'd been a violent, enormous uprising in Jamaica. I want us to, to think about the, the, the decade in which slavery, not the slave trade, but slavery, comes to an end in, in Britain. So I'm going to ask you to imagine this country as it was in the 1830s. And it's a bit of a leap of imagination. They say the past is another country. So you have to imagine a Britain where we're ruled entirely by posh white men from private schools. So it's, a, it's a country in which there's been an enormous financial crash because there's been a crisis in America and we've had to nationalize some of the banks. It's, it's really hard. I know you've really got to come with me on this. And, Imagine this alien, alien world. It's a country where there's a shortage of housing. <laughs> and it's also the country that's fighting with its morality about slavery. And it's also the decade in which we know the most about, about slavery, and there's a reason for that. But before I get onto that, let me talk about the act that ended slavery, the 1833 Slavery Abolition Act, though it has a much longer, dreary title that would take most of the 15 minutes. Like most acts, actually, we, we know them by the shorthand, thank God. Now, everyone these days, or most people these days, unless you're in an academy, has taught about the Abolition Act at school. We learn that it was, <laughs> it was pushed through Parliament, and it freed 800,000 people. It is a remarkable act, and it was the work of the abolitionists, of the slaves themselves who rebelled, and it was resisted immensely by the slave owners. But we don't teach all of the Slavery Act. There's two clauses that we don't talk about, we don't teach our children. And the most important is the compensation clause. Slavery came to an end because we negotiated a way to bring it to an end with the slave owners. And what they got was compensation. Not 
a small amount of compensation, not a token sum, but the biggest bailout in British history until 2009, 2010, when we bailed out the banks. The British government raised £20 million through taxation and borrowing, which is the equivalent today of 16 to £17 billion. And that was distributed to the 46,000 British slave owners. Now, that was 40% of all government expenditure for the year 1834. It's an unprecedented and colossal sum. The other element of the Act that we don't talk about is the Apprenticeship Act. Apprenticeship is a lovely misnomer in, this, in this, uh, this case. Apprenticeship was a system where the slaves actually ended up paying part of the cost of their own freedom. They were ordered, made to work for a further four years for nothing, 45 hours a week, to pay part of the cost to the slave owners for their freedom. We skip those elements of the Act because we do like to talk about abolition as coming entirely out of the goodness of our heart. To manage this enormous bureaucratic task of paying the compensation, the government created the Slave Compensation Commission. And like all bureaucracies, it left records. And historians love records. In this case, they are incredible documents. It's, they're called the T-71 files. They're at the National Archive in Kew. There's 1,631 files. And they tell us everything about the slave owners. They tell us, for the only time, in the three centuries that Britain is a slave-trading and slave-owning nation, who the slave owners actually were, all of them. We have their names. We know how many slaves they owned. We know mainly where they lived. We know where the slaves, the other human beings that they saw as their property, in which islands they labored and suffered. And this has all been brought to light. Well, we always knew the records were there, but the analysis of the records has been done by an amazing project at University College London, the Legacies of British Slave Ownership. And if you have a chance to go online, their website has made those records into a database. So any of us can put in the names of our, our family names, the street you live in, the house you live in, and you can see whether there's a link to your lives and the people who owned slaves at the end of slavery in, in 1833. Now, we always knew who some of the slave owners were. We always knew there was famous slave owners. There were people who were so immensely wealthy that they, they were all over the place in the 18th and 19th century. They were immensely celebrated figures. They were legendary uh, aesthetes. They lived lascivious lives. And they invested their money and became the, a new generation of landed gentry. They're all on the records, as you'd expect. So the biggest payout goes to the Gladstone family. They get around £100,000, which is £80 million in today's money, and they own about 2,500 slaves. The Gladstones were... The dynasty was run by John Gladstone, who was the father of William Hewitt Gladstone, who became the great Victorian Prime Minister. William Gladstone's regarded as a liberal, as a reformer. His first speech in Parliament was in defence of the slave trade. And given Daddy's investment in the slave trade, you can see why he was eager to defend it. But there's also famous names in the list, smaller families, but their descendants went on to be famous. So George Orwell's family received compensation money. His ancestor, Charles Blair, Orwell's real name was Eric Blair, of course, was a slave owner in Jamaica. The ancestors of Graham Greene, the ancestors of the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and the ancestors of David Cameron all received compensation. But what's excited the historians at University College London, what excited us when we made the television series, and what's really changing the way we understand slavery 
is the, the unfamous names. Because we now know that slave ownership was ordinary. It wasn't exceptional. It wasn't just the prerogative of the 1% of the super-rich. Ordinary people own slaves. Now, I don't mean working-class people. I don't mean the poor. I mean middle and lower-middle-class people, people who had moderate means investments, uh, people who were widows who inherited slaves. And this is what you get. You get this, this cross-section of late Georgian, early Victorian society. You get vicars, home county vicars, who have investments in the Caribbean, who own other human beings, and every Sunday lead their sermons. But every year, the money comes in from the Caribbean. We have people who own minor manufacturing concerns in the Midlands, who are supporting their investments with money flowing in from the Caribbean from slavery. And we have lots and lots of widows. 40%, and this is something nobody knew, 40% of the slave owners in the Caribbean, and most of them do live in the Caribbean, of the 46,000, 40% were women. Now, the reasons for this are because then, as now, women outlive men, and they inherited enslaved people along with other property in their wills. So they got houses and livestock and land and other human beings. Now, the records tell us who these people were. It tells them where they, li where they lived. And... It's not surprising that there's a cluster of them here in this city. This city really made its wealth on the slave trade. That was over by 1807. But Bristol was a city with huge investments in slavery. And if you think about your, your journeys here tonight and how you might have come through the city, if you came through Clifton or Hotwells or you came up from Westbury or from Redlands, you may well have driven or walked or cycled past the homes of people who were slave owners got some examples. So just in Bristol, we get a full range of the slave owners, from the super rich to the ordinary people that I mentioned earlier. So in York Place, we've got the Trotman family, who owned thousands of slaves, so hundreds of slaves in Barbados. In Four Savile Place, which is in Clifton, lived Thomas Seeley, who was the owner of 250 enslaved people in the Caribbean. At 49 Queen Square, and there's many slave owners in Queen Square, was Philip James um, Phipps Hood, who owned 18 slaves in Jamaica. If you wandered up to Barclay Square, at the top of Park Street, there lived Thomas Daniel. Now, Thomas Daniel is a very important figure. He's somebody who the Bristol historian Madge Dresser has written about. He was a man who was called, at one time, the King of Bristol. He was the owner of hundreds and hundreds of slaves in plantations in Guyana, in Antigua, in Montserrat, in Barbados, in Jamaica. And at the other end of the spectrum, at one York place up in Clifton, was Elizabeth Johnson, who owned one slave in Demerara, for whom she got, she got paid her compensation. When we made our TV series, um, Britain's Forgotten Slave Owners, we were very keen that people went onto the website and typed in their names, and a quarter of a million people put their names in, their family names, their, their street names, to look, to look up to see whether those links for slavery were there. And I really commend that you do that. I've done it. I'm half British. In fact, there is a family with my mother's family name on the register. And it's a disturbing, but I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. But many people were shocked by the stories that we've told about slavery. And I think they're shocked because we've done so well in this country at airbrushing slavery out of our, out of our national story. If you ask most people to describe slavery, what they'll describe is cotton fields and 
white houses with pillars at the end of long avenues. What they're describing is the cotton slavery of the American Deep South, the world of Gone with the Wind and 12 Years a Slave and Roots. They're not describing the proto-industrial sugar slavery of the Caribbean that made this city and this country enormously, enormously wealthy. But I think it goes deeper than just ownership of slaves. Tonight, we're in a, a tobacco factory that, that was a tobacco factory. That's when people had to have real jobs and they couldn't make a living doing smart-ass tweets. Like, <laughs> but tobacco was, was the first product, the product that really brought Britain into being a slave-owning nation. It was grown in Virginia and the colonies the first colonies Britain had in the New World, in North America, what became the United States. And the first people to grow it were indentured laborers, poor English and Irish men and women who were brought over, signed away five years of their life, and then they were freed. Those five years they worked cultivating tobacco. But the, the tobacco merchants saw what was happening in Barbados with the sugar barons, with the enormous profits when African slavery was added into the mix. And in 1619, they brought over the first 20 African slaves who, the first British slaves anywhere, British-owned slaves, and they landed them on the York River. And that began the process of Britain becoming a great slave-owning nation. But interestingly, something else happened in 1619 which affects tobacco and affects this city and this city's links with the outer world because tobacco is very different to cotton and sugar is that it, it's not a tropical crop. It actually can be grown in Britain. And in the 17th century, there were very effective attempts to produce tobacco in the West Country, in Gloucestershire. And in 1619, the first, the year that Britain began down the journey becoming a slave-owning power, the first laws banning the production of tobacco grown in Britain were passed. And what, later laws were passed by the merchant ventures of this city to make sure that the tobacco monopoly, the slave monopoly in the Caribbean was maintained. This building was built after all of that happened, but it is part of the legacy. What made Britain a global nation, what made this city a node in a global world was, was tobacco and was slavery and was sugar. And we've forgotten that for too much. And Britain doesn't make sense unless you remember how global, how international, and how central slavery was to our story. The great British intellectual, British um, Jamaican intellectual, Stuart Hall once said, when asked why there were so many immigrants in Britain, he said that we are here because you were there. Britain makes a lot more sense if we remember that. And when we're in a tobacco factory in a city surrounded by the homes of slave owners built on the slave trade, it's pretty difficult. You really have to go out of your way to not confront this history. So I really commend to you that you go and put in the streets you've lived in, your family names, into the legacies of British slave ownership website, because I think it's part of a really dynamic, interesting time in Britain where we're finally beginning to say we are a big enough country, a mature enough democracy to confront all aspects of our past, not just the nice ones. Thank you.